Psalm 120. Pages are stopping, that's good. Let me tell you a story about the first memorable thing that happened to me when I went into full-time ministry. Uh, I'd been serving in a church for a while, and the Lord opened it up for us to go full-time, and I was excited. Uh, it was a young church, and the Lord had recently blessed my wife and myself with some extra money. And so I talked to the pastor and said, look, are, are there, is there anything around that you need that we could target this money for rather than just putting into the regular offering and letting it go in? He said, yeah, there are a couple of things. How many of you remember the Palm Pilot? One of those first PDAs. Remember those? Any of you have those? I had one. It was fun. They were kind of cool. Uh, pastor said, you know what? Technology stuff, this would be really helpful. And he was right. It was. So we purchased two of those. We purchased some other things. And boy, we were excited. And the week came when I stopped working where I had been and I began working at church full-time. It was great. I walked into a desk that was about almost as wide as this. Almost. It wasn't very big, and I walked in, and there was a pile like this on top of it. And like, okay, we're going to do this. And it was exciting. And that first Sunday came and went, and it was, you know, fantastic. I had a great time. Monday morning, pastor pulls me in. I'm like, oh, what have I done? I, it's only been one week. I couldn't have done too much. And he said, Mark, I need to talk to you. Sit down. I'm like, okay. He said, uh, someone's levied a pretty serious charge against you that we need to talk about. I'm like, <laughs> what in the world could someone possibly have done? And the long and short of it was, someone in the church accused me of embezzling money because I told them, I was excited the Lord had provided that we had purchased these PDAs and that I had used it with money that we had given to the church and it was a donation, all this kind of stuff. And his assumption was that I did that and laundered the money through the church and that was my personal property and, you know, we were just using the church, yada, 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 yada. And I was just appalled. Well, the pastor knew what was going on. He said, don't worry, I set him straight. But just so you'll know, somebody had a question. Now, the worst part of it was, it was a friend of mine. I mean, a guy I'd known for years. And as far as I knew, I had a safe testimony with, but because I, he walked right, you know, trotted right in there Sunday night right after, hello, uh, Sunday night right after church, and boy, he was, you know, he was mad. But this was my friend accusing me of breaking the law and doing all these kind of crazy things, like, hold everything. I was caught off guard. He never came to me, just went straight to the pastor. I'm thinking, what in the world have I gotten into? Maybe I should have stayed where I was. Maybe this ministry thing is not such a great idea. Now, I say that, I look back at it and laugh. I'm guessing that at some point in your life, you've had difficulties with a coworker or someone that you know. It may have been a neighbor. Someone who perhaps, if it's at work, maybe they've gone behind your back to say, hey, you need to know about this guy and what he does because he's really messing things up and you know, he's trying to climb over you to get to the next place on the ladder. It may be that they're going around telling lies about you. It may be someone who's gossiping about something you've done. Unfortunately, it might have extended into a family relationship. It's very frequent that extended family don't speak to each other for whatever reason. Most of the time, there's some kind of personal hurt, and they just don't talk, and everybody knows about it. We just don't put them in the same room or on the same row. Often, this extends into marital relationships, where there's sniping and betrayal. And one putting, you know, putting the kids against the other or saying things meant to hurt 
because they want what they want and that's what they're going to do. And those are things that we struggle with just like the rest of the world. People will not always be nice. People won't always look at you and assume the best. And that hurts. It's a struggle to respond correctly when someone takes a personal shot at you. And you know it's a shot. It's not, oh, ha, 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 I'm teasing. You know that's what they're doing. And it's worse when it's somebody that's close to you. Whatever the circumstance, those are real pains and real problems. And as believers, as citizens of the kingdom, we need to make sure we're responding correctly. If you look at Psalm 120, you can see that this writer, whomever he was, has gone through very similar circumstances. Let's look down at the text. He says this, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What more shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with burning coals from the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but they are for war. You can see he's having some very similar things going on. There are people who are lying about him, who are saying things that are wrong. They're trying to run him down. It looks like they're trying to be very harmful. And like this writer... We need to look and say, okay, how does God handle our distress? How do we do this right? How do we go through this so that the world looks and sees the gospel working in our lives and not us just kind of gutting our way through life and hoping for the best? So what I want to do is look back through this psalm. I want to see what he was going through. Then we need to look at how did he handle the situation inside and out because we get a lot of his thought process. He uses a lot of words to tell us how he felt... And then you get to all that, you think, okay, and then the response is completely different. And we need to see what his response was, because he pushes us to Christ in a way that we need to be pushed. So let's look at this first. Let's look at the occasion for this prayer. Let's look at why he's praying, what was going on. And it's really simple. He's in the midst of a broken and stressful relationship of some kind. Some kind. When you read through this, look at what he says. Verse 1, he talks about lying lips. I'm sorry, it's verse 2. Lying lips and a deceitful tongue. He feels like it's his soul being attacked. You know, deliver my soul. This isn't just, well, you know, things are bad, but it's going to be okay. It's touched him in a very deep way. He says, it's my soul. And these are people with lying lips, a deceitful tongue. They keep coming at me and it's, it's wrong. But it doesn't stop with just lies. Look back down at verses 6 and 7. He says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. You, know, you, can, you can ignore people who talk. You can kind of put up with it. After a while, you can kind of tune that out. But if you have to deal with them day in and day out, and they aren't willing to back away or anything, look at verse 6. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I'm for peace. I'm trying to make this thing okay. But whenever I speak, they're for war. They just won't let it go. They just won't do it. They don't want to reconcile. You know, if you leave them alone, they keep 
sniping. They keep going at it. If you try to talk with them and do it, what do they do? They start an argument. They start telling other people, well, he came and he said so-and-so. Well, you should have heard him lie up and down, trying to blame me for whatever it was. Twisting words, changing things to make you look bad, to make them look good, all so they can keep this stress on you, so they can get their own way. They can get what they want. So that's the occasion for the prayer. This is why we see him saying, Lord, deliver my soul. Because it's become a pretty stressful thing. Now let's look at the attitude in his prayer. And I call it anguish of soul. Anguish is one of those words, but it communicates that there's something going on inside. Uh, look at the words he uses. Let's, let's look back through here. Verse, verse 1, in my trouble or distress... I cried out to the Lord. Uh, deep emotional pain is what he's trying to say. That's what the word trouble there carries. It's an inward emotional kind of thing. He's hurting inside and therefore he cries out. You say, oh Mark, you're just saying it. No, the word means he's calling out by name. He's reaching out for someone to throw him a lifeline. Someone to try to help. Someone to value him enough to help him get out of the situation. Uh, I saw in the news... Yesterday, I, was, I read through a couple of news websites. And Friday morning, in the early hours of the morning, down in Anderson, three men who lived in a mobile home woke up to find the thing engulfed in flame. Just roaring inferno. They barely made it out. But they were uninjured. But one of the young men, a 22-year-old named Patrick, noticed that he didn't have his phone. And I hear the murmuring. You already know what happened. Patrick decided to go in and rescue to deliver his phone. And he was overcome by smoke and died in the flames. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, I need someone to come and deliver me, to pull me out, to value me enough to go in there and get me out of this situation because it hurts. You know, he says, this is in my soul. This wasn't just somebody being mean to him. It's built up to the point where he's just about to break. It has gotten inside of him and he can't get away from it. And whatever's going on, whoever's doing this is keeping the pressure on. So you can see the, the emotions beginning to well up and there's a bubbling inside. And it's not you know, the, the joy of the Lord being his strength. There is problem on the horizon. It's getting inside of him. Verse 5, you look down and he says, Woe is me. The Old Testament, when you see woe, you need to think groaning, muttering. It's, it reminds me of the verse in Romans where it says, The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that can't be uttered. That's what a woe is. When you're saying woe is me, you're saying right now I am characterized by grief and pain. I can't get away from this. It's consuming me. Woe is me. They say, I'm sojourning in Meshach and Kedar. Now, real quick geography lesson. Meshach uh, is the root word where we eventually get the word from Muscovites, those who are from Moscow. Uh, the, 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 the people in Meshach were actually from the, uh, they were north of Israel, up near the Black Sea, just to the east of Turkey and northwest of Iran, right up in that area. They were a warlike race who raided all the way down into Syria and Lebanon. They didn't get quite so far to get into Israel. But during this time in the ancient world, they, they had a swath of, of four or 500 miles where they would just go nuts. And they were very similar to what you would think of Attila the Huns over in uh, Asia, all the way over when they came in and actually conquered the Roman Empire. 
Same kind of people. Kedar, however, is down south. Uh, Kedar was the name of one of the sons of Ishmael. And his, follow, his, his descendants became the people of Kedar. And they were a nomadic tribe that did the same thing in the south. They ran around. They didn't live anywhere. They just went down attacking people, taking things, and then going back to wherever they wanted to be. Or they would take over the cities that was there. So here's the writer. He's in pain and distress. Woe! He can't explain how bad he feels. And so he's trying and he's giving us a picture. He says, I'm living, I feel like I'm living in the midst of people who are on every side of me, north, south, east, and west. They're attacking, they're coming in, they're trying to take over, and it's all I can do to survive. He's surrounded by people who are out to get him. That's how it feels. And the important thing to note here is, It's his perception that counts. Because in your life, it's your perception that counts. It may not be everybody in the world. And we may speak in hyperbole, but if that's how it feels, that's the reality to you. He says, verse 6, Too long have I dwelt, has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. Where I come from back in Alabama, we'd say, Way too long these people have been bothering me. And you you begin to get more and more feeling from where he's coming from. Woe is me, this has gone on so long. I just can't do this anymore. These people are just relentless. It's just getting to be too much. Those who hate, there's another word that's superlative there. It's not, well, they're just kind of against me. These are people who hate peace. The idea here is a proactive, personal kind of hatred. They're actually doing something with what they feel. It's not just, well, you know, I don't like Tom. I do like Tom, by the way. But it's not, I just don't like Tom. I'm going to find ways to make his life miserable. I will let David be his son-in-law, and that'll take care of it. I'm teasing. I like Dave, too. But there's a personality to it that's trying to find a way to get in there and make it as bad as possible. there's a hatred there that's active and moving. And then you get to verse 7, and he says, look, I've tried everything. The language of the Old Testament, when he says, I'm for peace, literally he's saying, I myself am peace. I am doing everything I can to make this as simple as possible, to make it easy to deal with me, or I'm just going to move away from it. I won't confront them. I'll I'll work down here. You work down there. I won't go to wherever you're going to be. He's doing everything he can. And it's to no avail. Even when he just speaks, they're against him. When I speak, they're for war. And it's the same construction. They are war. They're characterized. This is all he sees when he sees them. He knows this is their end. There's just nothing else that he can do. And it's obvious that he's struggling here to cope with what's going on in his life. So the next question really is find out what did he do? I mean, we're in the Psalms. This is poetic. He's expressing himself as best he can so that other people can sing these Psalms and find out Here's what you do. Here's how to handle this. And so we look at the object of his prayer, and we see this. In his distress, he placed his trust in God. Remember how he described this. It's deep trouble. It's anguish of soul. He's facing aggressive, ruthless 
unscrupulous enemies. And when the circumstances in his life became too much, when he couldn't see anything, we go all the way back up to verse 1 now. And he says, In my trouble, I cried to the Lord. He placed his hope and his confidence in his God, and he was not disappointed. He looked to the Lord. This is, this is a, a neat way to look at this. In the language of the Old Testament, it reads like this. To the Lord, in my anguish to me, I cried out, calling Him by name, and He answered me. To the Lord, the very first thing when He's telling us, hey, I've go, I'm going through this. You know, now, we don't know what He's introducing when we first look at the psalm, right? In my trouble, I cried to the Lord. He's trying to tell us, the Lord is the most important thing to see here. To the Lord. To the Lord what? In my anguish, in my trouble, in my distress. Okay, so God, trouble, what? He said, I cried out. And that's where we need to be. Life will not always be pleasant. There are people who are just not pleasant to be around. That's who they are. There are people who are trying to find any way to get ahead for themselves, regardless of what happens to anybody else. Even if we give them the benefit of the doubt and try to see the good, they eventually get back to where that's just who they are. But he says, I cried out to God, to the Lord. That's the important thing. He's giving God the primary place. He's making sure that our focus is like His. It's on the Lord. To the Lord in my anguish I cried. So that God is the primary one. And there's really not a whole lot else to be said, except this. Notice the tenses of the verbs there. Look back at verse 1. In my trouble, whenever that was, I cried to the Lord. When did that happen? Somebody wow me. I need somebody seventh grade or lower. Can you help me? When did this... Okay, I'll go to ninth grade because I'm not sure how many seventh graders we have in here. When did this take place? He said, in my distress, I cried to the Lord. When did that happen? Is he waiting for that to happen? Be brave. Okay. How many of you think he means it already happened? I do. Raise your hands. Okay. He says, I cried to the Lord. This has already taken place. This is something that has in the past. I cried to the Lord back when this trouble was going on. And he answered me. He's already done it. He's already taken care of him. Now notice, we don't know how here. It doesn't say. But the point is this. To the Lord! And God's already taken care of it. This reads like it's a psalm of lament. And it really is. But we can look at this and realize that the psalmist is writing to encourage us. Because he's seen God do the work already. He has already prayed and cried out to the Lord by name. Because he was in such agony. Oh God, what next? You ever feel that way? And yet, he said God's already answered. He's looking back on this and saying, I know 
how God takes care of me when I'm in distress, when relationships are broken, when it's hard to do anything, God answers and cares. So what do we take away from this? How do we demonstrate the gospel in our lives through this? We don't want just principles, okay, this is how to be nice to people, this is how to handle it. What about this shows us how we need to live? What do we need to do? How do we handle what's going on here? The first thing that we need to do is this, we need to look to God. That's the emphasis of the psalm. The prayer is all because of God. The first response when life gets like this, and it probably be doing this before it gets this bad, but certainly when it's like this, we look to God. We look to God right away. God is the source of any comfort, of any help you're going to get. It's not in self-help books. It's not in a counselor. It's not in anybody doing it. It's not in the latest book that's in the Christian bookstore. God is our comfort. God is our strength. We look to Him. We look to Him and Him alone. And He says, here it is. Why? We know God cares because He already has taken care of the psalmist. He's already done it. He cried and he was answered already. Since we're in the Old Testament, let's look at a couple of verses in Jeremiah 29. They're up on the screen. You don't need to try to flip over there. Jeremiah 29. God says this to Jeremiah, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He's saying the exact same thing the psalmist is. God cares enough that he knows what's going on. And when you cry out, he will answer. He will care for you. Because he knows already what's going on. The old gospel song, I Must Tell Jesus, Elisha Hoffman reminds us that in my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. In our weakness, in our distress, we must look to God because he really, really cares. Number two, you need to learn to be honest with God. You need to learn to be honest with God. Remember all those words, all that emotion that the writer is is demonstrating, showing us? He basically pulled back his sternum and said, here's what's going on in my heart right now. Here's how I feel. I, I think we fear to approach God in honesty because really spiritual people don't feel that way. Really spiritual people don't fuss with God about the circumstances they're in. They just stoically take it because God brought it there and He's the sovereign of the universe and that's the way God wants it to be. Can I remind you of something? This world is broken beyond anything you can imagine by sin. And because of that, bad things happen. God is not behind the bad things. That's not God. God is the author of grace and comfort and love and strength so that we can get through those things. But He does not bring the bad. God does not bring a temptation to you and say, okay, I'm going to watch. You're going to mess up. That is not God. 
Temptations come because there is sin in the world. God says, I will give you grace that can be sufficient as you go through that. I give you strength to get through that. But God is not the one bringing sin. Sin is doing its own work. God is active for us. I will just say, it behooves you to be honest with God about what's going on in your heart. Yes, God knows everything. God knows what you are thinking. So why do I need to say it? Because you need comfort from God. I, mean, I can walk up and you know, I can tell some of you sometimes life is being hard. It's tough. And I can pat you on the back, put my arm around you, and I will. And say, you know, I'm praying for you. If I can do anything, let me know. And that may be a small source of comfort. But if you and I sit down over coffee or over lunch or just sit down and talk and you start telling me everything, and then I begin to respond to that, there's a difference. There's a difference in how you're going to take anything I have to say. And that's exactly how we ought to give information to God. When we pray, God needs to know what's going on in your heart. Because as we express that, what does that do? It puts us in a dependent place before Almighty God. And we're acknowledging that you can handle this, and I sure can't because this is really bad. God is listening. He's waiting for us. He wants to show He cares. But if you're just putting up with it and saying, well, I'm resting in my theology that God can take care of everything, you're going to wrestle with these kinds of things because God wants to comfort your heart. And when you don't open your heart to Him, that is hard for Him to do. Not difficult for Him, it's hard for you to receive. Number three, let God be the judge. Easiest thing in the world is when someone betrays you when someone says something bad about you and someone's trying to climb over you in the workplace, the normal thing to do is to respond in kind. (laughs) You want your pound of flesh because they've gotten theirs out of you. And I'm going to get that because they deserve that and God's going to get them anyway. I will be the instrument of God's retribution. No, we don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. Too many places tell us that's God's job. Some people might look at this psalm and say, well, look at verses 3 and 4, Mark. Hold everything. Sounds like he's planning something to me. Look down at the text. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sounds like he's getting ready to unload on him, doesn't he? Verse 4, sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. It's exactly what it sounds like. Arrows and burning coals. The broom tree was just a common tree. They would pull up the tree and use the roots. They were incredibly hard. You burned it and made great coals. They would burn a long time. They would burn very hot. But the point is, somebody's going to get this guy. And you could look at it and say, well, the psalmist is saying he's going to be the one. Problem with that is verse 2. Verse 2 says, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. Who's he asking to do the work? God. Deliver me from this. And then, hey, you people who are doing this, you watch. My God is going to take care of that. He's confident that God will take care of him. That God is going to do what needs to be done. We all have a built-in sense of justice. We want right to prevail. You remember back in 2011, in May of 2011, Osama bin Laden was finally found and killed. 
And there were spontaneous celebrations around the world, not just here. There were even celebrations in the Mideast. Because people want justice. They want wrong to be punished. They want right to prevail. It's natural because that's God's character. Wrong is dealt with. Right goes forward. But we struggle with it when it's us. Okay, how many of you have been on the interstate? Car goes zooming by. Your first thought is, where's the police when you need them? And then you come up over that hill and you look down and what's on the side of the road? Junior in his BMW 5 Series doing about 800 miles an hour and there's a state trooper behind him. And what do you do? Exactly what you're doing right now. You smile. Yeah, <laughs> he got what was coming to him because that's how we think. But we don't have the luxury to exercise that retribution. That's not for us. He's crying out to the Lord, Lord, you deliver me. And we have examples in Scripture, by the way. If David is the writer of this psalm, and many of the commentators believe that he is, I can give you two illustrations from David's life. When David was king, he had a young son named Absalom. Do you remember him? Absalom decided he wanted to be king. So he actually rose up in rebellion against his father. And one of David's trusted counselors, a man named Ahithophel, took Absalom's side, broke off from David when the household left and when they fled Jerusalem, Ahithophel stayed behind. And he sided with the usurper. I imagine that was probably disappointing to David. He probably would like to have seen God deal with him. And God did. David didn't have to go after him. Shortly after that, one of David's men made his way back into the city, a man named Hushai, and he was allowed to serve as a counselor alongside Absalom, just like Ahithophel. And when push came to shove, Absalom, because of God's working, took Hushai's counsel and not Ahithophel. Ahithophel realized what God was doing. He went out, got his affairs in order, and the Bible says he went and killed himself. Saul, the first king of Egypt, rose up against David. Saul recruited David. David spent time in Saul's personal part of the palace. And, you know, okay, palace, we're talking about something maybe as big as here. But he was there personally close to Saul. What, three, four times we've got record that Saul tried to kill David because he was jealous of him. He sent his armies out after him. And then David was given the golden ticket. He was in a large cave and Saul and some of his bodyguard came into that cave to sleep for the night. And, David and his, David's men are going, get him. Get him. Once they go to sleep, get him. We'll take care of you. And David's like, no. I will not set my hand against God's anointed. God will deal with Saul. And in the same way, Saul went into despair. He lost his kingdom and he committed suicide. Can God take care of his own? Absolutely. We don't need to be involved in that. That's not ours. Now, it's hard not to. Because when your feelings are hurt and it's personal, you want personal satisfaction. But we've got to remember, back here, the example we're being given, verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord. Not deliver my soul, the closest guy that's got a club around that can bring somebody in the head. It's not our job. Finally, you already set that one up. Number four, seek God's kind of peace. Seek God's kind of peace. And I, I choose those words very carefully. 
Seek God's kind of peace. Peace may not always mean a cessation of hostility. It may not go away. Now, Romans 12 tells us that, that we need... Matthew, Matthew 5, I'm going to skip by there. Uh, breeze by that. Romans 12. Paul says, as much as is possible with you, live peaceably with all men. As far as you can go, be at peace with people. But I mentioned earlier, we are in a broken world. Everyone will not respond right and see God's point of view that things need to be reconciled. And there are people that just will not reconcile. As much as lies within you, live peaceably. But you cannot control someone else's reactions. And in those cases, 1 Corinthians 10 is where we go. We remember that Paul told us, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. Circumstances in life happen to everyone. We all will deal with these things. But God is faithful, who will not push you beyond your limits, but He will make a way of escape, notice the last phrase, so that you can endure it. Your answer may not be a fix, it may be grace to go through the difficulty. And that has to be okay. We have to be willing to let God say, this is how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to help you deal with those people instead of removing the problem. And that's not natural for us. We don't respond that way. We want a fix. We want out. We want the pain to stop. And when it doesn't, we often look and say, God's not answering. But I would challenge you, look back through these seven verses. I don't see the writer getting any help here. Except for the fact that God answered him when he said, Lord, help. And it may be that for us, the only help is grace. And what did God tell Paul? My grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's enough for today. And you wake up tomorrow and we start again. And His grace is sufficient. Very often we struggle seeing the gospel when we try to deal with our... With, in getting the right response when we're in difficulty. You know, what about my salvation applies here? How do I live like a saved person in this situation. And that's what we mean when we say we're living out the gospel. What does a saved person do when they're faced with this kind of situation? A lot of times people say, well, what would Jesus do? In this case, we don't have to ask that question. We know what Jesus did. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was in great sorrow and distress, knowing that crucifixion was within hours. What did he do? Took his disciples with him. He went to a place and he prayed. He called out to God. He cried out by name. And by the way, I think if you read through the prayer, uh, I, I would say there was anguish of soul going on. He was working so hard, he was sweating large drops as if it was blood pouring off of him. He's sweating so hard. He says, Lord, if it's possible, let this thing pass. Get me out of the situation. But... Not my will, but thine be done. While he's hanging on the cross, suffering from shame and torture, 
He's had nails driven through his hands and through his feet. And he's hanging there, struggling to breathe. Does he seek retribution? No. One of the thieves next to him who had reviled him earlier looked over and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he wasn't worried about himself. He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He looked around at the people who were torturing and mocking him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. He didn't look for a way to fix himself. He didn't try. And by the way, if anybody could have, he could have. By right, he could have. But he had something else in mind. You and me. And by suffering how he did, he completed a salvation that we never could have attained. And in the meantime, showed us that by God's grace, we can handle stress and brokenness and personal hurt, and people turning against us and betraying us. Not because we're any good, but because God can take care of us in any struggle. The very last thing he said was, it is finished. Because he cried out to God, and God answered him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are strong in our weakness, that you are perfect in our brokenness, and yet you reach down and you enable us day by day to walk in the gospel, to face all of the things that we face, and learn to respond in a way that shows the grace of God active in our lives so that others would see Christ and want that. They want to turn away from their sin and realize they have no hope except in Christ. We have no hope except in Christ. I know there are people here who are hurting today. We all do at some point. I don't know who that is right now, but you do. And Lord, I pray you'd encourage them to cry out to you, that you would be the first thought, not anything else, not the people they'd like to get at, not the things they would like to change in life but that you would be the primary thought, that you would drive us to yourself so that our perspective would be right. We would see anew the grace of God and let you work in our hearts, that you would change us, mold us, and make us into what we ought to be. Help us in the quietness of this time to determine in our hearts to set time aside to take care of this kind of thing in our hearts. Not to let these kinds of raw emotions rule us, but instead to turn our hearts to you, Lord. Help us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Keep your heads bowed just a